welcome to the sanctuary, a safe space to speak from the heart. I'm your host, Israel. And my guest today is someone I've followed for years and years and years. Like, I, I had to go way down on my Instagram to find you. That's how long I've been following Johnny. Johnny is an artist. Like, you do cartoons, and, but I think you also... Um, I know you don't like being called this, but you are the founder of Sadvember. And <laughs> so thanks so much for coming to the uh, Sanctuary today. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, were you always drawing? Like, how did you get into drawing? Yeah, definitely. Um, since I was a little kid, I've been making comics since I was very, very young. I was always super attracted to them. I read the newspaper comics from as early as I could remember. And I remember um, my, I had older cousins and they had Mad Magazine around. So that was a big influence. And then um, in 1993, Superman mm. died. And that's when I started reading superhero comics. Oh. So I remember that. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> lots of backstory. Wait, like the Superman in the comic or... Yeah, the the the, oh. the company DC they temporarily killed Superman, and um, seven year old me was sucked in by that gimmick. So <laughs> it worked. Yeah, um, and then like so, it's it's one thing reading and being you know surrounded by all these things. And at what point did you start uh, drawing? Well, yeah, I was always, always drawing, but I guess in terms of like putting my work out there, um, mm -hmm. in 2008, I attended Toronto's Canzine Zine Fair, and that was the first time I ever went to a zine fair in my life. Um, and it was actually, it was 2007 that I attended, and it was a really eye opening experience for me seeing all these independent creators sharing their work in this, you know, curated, semi curated space. Um, and uh, I quickly realized that as much as I love buying zines from other artists, if I made my own zines, I could trade. So um, the next year I got my own table and I made a bunch of books and tried to trade with people, gave a lot away, uh, but it was really cool intro to a path to sharing work. Oh, wow. 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 Um, do you remember some of the first books you made for that zine fair? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of them's still on my website. It's called Two Fisted Males, and it's actually a play on a old uh, EC comic called Two Fisted Tales, which was like a 1950s war comic. Um, but it's about a two-headed monster, and they share a genitals, and they fight over who's in control of their genitals. <laughs> How did they decide that? <laughs> well, they don't. <laughs> It's an internal eternal conflict. So oh, I'm still happy with that book. It's, what, it's uh, definitely <laughs> X-rated. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you like make such material right away, or you grew into that? Um, it was yeah. I mean, I had time. Like, I had the whole year basically from the 2007 festival to knowing that I wanted to do it in 2008. But mm. yeah, at the time, I was living at home in my parents' basement, so <laughs> there was a lot of chance to figure out the story, sketch it out, bring it to life. And at that time, I was very interested. Um, so original zine culture is all on the photocopier. Um, it's pre-digital, right? Ooh. So I was very interested in that time about doing everything without any digital aids. So mm. I drew everything by hand. I went to the um, Kinko's, which was still open, and uh, photocopied everything off a of master. You, you create like a dummy book, basically, and then you use that to photocopy all the different editions. Mm. So I was very proud of the fact that I was doing it to the um, letter, you know, uh, 
the zine code. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it just occurred to me that you actually have to plan it out with the drawing, like plan it out for how you're going to copy it, right? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much planning that goes in, into any comic. I usually do a script phase um, sometimes, and many artists do thumbnails where they do uh, very tiny drawings of what the whole book will look like, just so they have a roadmap. And then there's the pencil stage, then you ink it. So it's pretty laborious. <laughs> Hand lettering is also takes a long time. Yeah. Um, do you, whenever, I guess, with that story, you knew where it was going to and you knew how it ended before you started writing it? Yeah, yeah. So I, I had like an outline, I, I did a few scripts, and I, I usually try and do as much work before getting to the final artwork as possible, because obviously, the more you plan, the less you're going to end up having to repeat work or getting writing yourself into a dead end where you are going like this, and then all of a sudden, you don't know where you're going. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. Like, I, I find, and I think I find just in general, <clears throat> with shows with tv shows or films sometimes like you can get sucked in and then the ending just kills it for me personally um and i i find that because of that fear i have or that experience i have i don't write anything until i know the end and sometimes because of that i don't even write anything like until i know okay this is how i want this to end i'm not even gonna start and and I, I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, but I feel your ending, ha like your beginning has to be great, but your ending should be gripping. That's how I feel. I think you're doing a great service to your audience by keeping that in mind. I think that having the attention of anyone and any audience is really um, something that shouldn't be taken for granted. And as much as possible, you should respect your audience. And I do you know, see, especially in commercial Hollywood, it's really easy where they think with all the flash and bang, that's enough. But the, you know, the heart isn't there. Mm. Yeah, we'll just put shiny stuff in front of their faces. So, um, you know, you did a zine fair. Um, like, did you ever go to any like art school or? Yes, yes. I um, I went to graphic design school for a couple years. Um, and so I've been working as a graphic designer ever since. And I actually have an MFA from a comic book school in Vermont. So oh, um, wow. it's like a program dedicated to making comics. And that definitely Holy accelerated shit. my uh, uh, practice. So I'd always been making comics beforehand, but it was really valuable experience um, to work with industry professionals and um, level up that way. And also, Prior to that, I was making all different kinds of art, which I still do, but it was nice to hone into one media. So mm. just know, you know, my main mode of expression is comics versus doing like some paintings, some video, some other stuff. You know, mm. I was doing all kinds of stuff. So yeah, what were some of the other kind of stuff you do, you, you were doing? Um, yeah, I had, I, I mean, I still do to an extent, but I had a performance art practice where I had this um, character that was kind of like a fake hippie meditation wellness guru, but it was kind of like playing on the fact that many people who tick up that space are fake. And what it was is, kind of, what, what was his name or Danny? Guratsta. Like uh, <laughs> my handle is J Rotsta. So it was like guru plus J Rotsta. Yeah. And yeah, so it was kind of like, basically like part of the his part of that project was the placebo effect is real 
Like belief mm. is stronger than any facts, right? If you believe something, no matter whether it's true or not, that's real. And playing on the good of that, because there's so much strength to that. And that's what spirituality is. That's what faith is. And that can give so much positivity. But then obviously there's a dark side to that where you have like QAnon and all these hucksters taking advantage of people's desire for connectivity and authenticity and, you know, preying on that. So mm. I was kind of playing between like the innate human need for connection and uh, the like way that people take advantage of that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned something that just had me thinking like, uh, and, and I think, you know, it isn't even objective at all like when it comes to belief once it sticks that's it um whether it's something you grew up with or whether it's something you like started reading online or you know however it got into your world once that belief sticks it's so difficult to pull off yeah and you know taking it to like a first year philosophy place i mean pretty much our whole society is a bunch of shared agreements beliefs that we state are true you know green light means go red light means stop like there's all these agreements that we make and you know when it comes to the pandemic oh we can't do this we can't do that well why not you know and some of those things are legitimate and some of them are just things that have been shared stories that have been shared so many times mm -hmm. that they become true whether they are or not Mm, mm, mm. Um, so you know, apart from the performance art, did you do any other type of art? Uh, yeah, I was like doing paintings. And um, at one point I considered myself to be an amateur outsider artist. So outsider art is um, when wealthy, connected people find people who make art that aren't wealthy and connected, like very stereotypically um, prisoners, people with mental health issues, people from, you know, poor backgrounds, and they find their art and they declare it as genius and they bring it into the mainstream, into the gallery system. So this is like a long trope in the art yeah. world. So who is the outside artist, the, the, the wealthy artist or the prisoner? The, the prisoner space? is the outsider. Oh, so uh, there's this very famous example of this artist named, uh, I think, Henry Darger, who was completely unknown. And he was like possibly um, had mental health issues uh, or intellectual, uh, uh, you know, divergence. And he was working in Chicago in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. And he created like tens of thousands of pages of this comic book about these like little girls and he'd never seen a little girl naked before. So he thought they had penises too. So all these oh, little wow. girls have penises. And <laughs> it's this crazy epic saga where there's these like Nazi-esque villains and Holy there's a whole shit. battle for good and evil. And it's beautiful. And, you know, after he died, people discovered this work and it just became commodified. And rather than keep it all collected, it was dispersed around the world. So no actual copy of the whole story exists. And oh, wow. uh, it's totally beautiful, but it's an example of, you know, he didn't go to art school. He never was engaging with the formal art wor mm. world. Uh, a Nova Scotia example is Maude Lewis, very famously. So she yeah, was... Yeah, film about her. Yeah, she was like a poor woman, rural woman. And um, I think the story is, don't quote me on this. Uh, many people know more about this than me. But I think like someone she worked for as like a washer, you know, doing chores for, discovered that she was this beautiful artist and brought her into the mainstream. So I think before she died, she did get to enjoy 
the uh, experience of having her work celebrated. But mm. part of the reason people like her work so much is because she, you know, had a physical handicap and she was poor and she wasn't from an urban center. So she was sort of this like enchanted outsider that definitely people, mm. there, it, there's good and bad to it. In some cases, it's amazing that, um, you know, people who didn't have like an art school background are able to have their work shared and hopefully yeah profit from it but at the same time they are commodified and somewhat tokenized mm. you know <laughs> art is uh, is is beautiful but it's also <sighs> there's commerce difficult. and creativity right exactly as soon as, soon as you the money you know we need to make money to live for some yeah. reason that's another agreement we all agree <laughs> to for some reason uh but um, you know, once the money enters into it, it's very hard to keep the genuine yeah. spirit, right? Yeah. Often, the, often the capital eats whatever is actually good about it. And mm. all you have left is the shiny thing. Yeah. And, and, and then, then the other thing again is value, right? Like, like art, there's a, there's a, I think, you know, I don't know much about art, but there was this painting that is just orange, right? And it's like on like it's it's like three type of shades of orange, and it's like it sold for millions and millions of dollars. And I'm like, how? Like how? You know, with the experience you have, right? Why? Why do you think like? How do you think art is valued? Like artwork? Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with the context, you know. So. Uh, I don't know that piece you're talking about in specific, but it sounds like modernism. And at the time of the modern era was like in art was like 1950s, 1960s. And after World War II, the Western world rejected the Baroque stuffiness of the previous art that came before it, like all the mm -hmm. like ornate classical art. They wanted like simplicity and they wanted, you know, they didn't want a lot of meaning in their artwork. Mm -hmm. And so now when you paint an orange square, maybe anyone can do it. But at the time it was a big deal. And then mm -hmm. so the that big deal is captured in that one work. And then the real thing is not so much that someone made that and that people appreciate it, but that there's someone wealthy enough that has the disposable income that they buy it. And then also, are they buying it because they appreciate it or are they buying it for status and as an yeah. investment, hoping that it is worth twice as much later? I have no clue. So, so I, you know, I just did a Me quick search <laughs> and, and it's, it's by... Mark Rothko and okay. it's called Orange, Red, Yellow, and it sold for eighty-six million dollars. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of him before, so a lot. You know, there's tens of millions of artists that we've never heard of, but I've heard of <laughs> that and, artist. So. And, and then that that kind of you know leads me to these NFT things. I don't know if you've heard of this. Yes, unfortunately, but like I don't get it. I don't. I don't get it. It seems to be a scam, so I don't <laughs> think there's a lot to get. <laughs> Anyway, so, um, you know, you did the performance art and you did, you know, the outside art and, and how did you, what, fake outsider I guess, art. yeah, <laughs> fake outside art. Cause I was how an did, insider the whole time. <laughs> how did you narrow it down to, um, comics? Well, yeah, I ended up in the school program and, um, and as I was applying for it, I just realized like, oh my God, like I've made a comic, at least one comic a year, every year since I was five years old and I have them all. Wow. So I kind of realized like, wow, like I, at first I had a bit of imposter syndrome. Like 
is this really the right path for me? Do I belong here? But I think that given my history, my personal history, I actually like I love comics. I've read them my whole life. Actually, like I'm a bit of an amateur comic historian. I know a lot about the history of comic books and artists and periods and stuff. And then I have this like um, history of making comic work. So it just kind of was a natural fit. And mm-hmm. in terms of like my before I became a graphic designer, I considered myself a writer. And many cartoonists, people who make comics are cartoonists, people who make uh, animations are animators, <laughs> an important distinction. But um, yeah, uh, I, I kind of, I consider myself to be a writer and graphic designer who makes comics, not an Ooh. illustrator. So many, many people who make comics are illustrators, and then they end up turning that into comics. But for me, it's, they're more like diagrams than they are like illustrations. So each of my comics is kind of like uh, the writing comes first. I always write first. And then the images are just to kind of reinforce the um, text. And for myself, like I honestly prefer reading a comic book to reading prose. I love prose and can read it, but I love having that interplay between the artwork and the text. And I find that they both uh, support each other and reinforce each other in terms of conveying meaning. So mm. ultimately it's a richer experience. And yeah. So in terms of like my leading up to comics, it's kind of from that frame as like a writer who wants my writing to be pop more. And so I add this graphic design element to it, which is mm. the illustrations. Wow. Uh, and then uh, what are some of the things that you feel um, taking that MFA in Vermont influence your work now after, you know, like in what way was your work influenced after taking that MFA at Vermont? Well, it was just really the privilege of being able to have the two years to, to dedicate to this one craft. So if it wasn't for that experience, I would probably end up more or less in the same place I am now, but it would just take longer. So having that, de- you know, like any school program, if you're really ready for it, you can dive in and you can dedicate yourself to your craft. So during that time, I um, did a daily diary comic for about four years. So every single day I would make a comic. And that was actually part of my imposter syndrome as well. I said to myself, if I don't make a comic every day, am I truly a cartoonist? No. Thankfully, I've outgrown that. And I know that even if I don't make a comic for a month or two, I'm still a cartoonist. But at that time, it was really important for me. And just the um, growth in my work was exponential, right? Because I was able to dedicate that time to it because I took the time to work on it every day. You know, the 10,000 mm-hmm. hour rule, I was just working at that muscle over and over again. So mm-hmm. um, it was amazing in terms of like uh, technical skills. I um leveled up with. It was really cool to learn about the industry and economics of it, because of course it always goes back to that. Um, And it was really cool to just be immersed with other creators who had the same passion that I did. Mm -hmm. I think my work didn't really change very much. I think I'm still kind of have the same voice and telling the same stories, but now it's just with a lot more grounding and depth to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Oh, you mentioned imposter syndrome. Like, at what point did you notice it was setting in, and how did you handle? Uh, well, how are you handling it so far? Yeah, it's always a back and forth. You know, um, those voices in your head—that's just the doubt. And at the end of the day, you just need to trust yourself. Um, it's yeah. I mean, 
when it comes down to it, I guess this, what I struggle with now is taking up space, you know, like, um, I have privilege in society. Uh, there's voices like mine are often heard. Um, and so I really think to myself, if I'm going to publicly make a statement, if I'm going to put out a piece of art, I really want to stand behind it and have it be something that I really truly want to say and that no one else is saying or no one else is saying the way I'm saying and that mm. it it will hopefully have an impact. The message will have an impact versus like just making art for the sake of making art, just for the attention, just for the likes and the clicks and the volume of work. So I really mm. try and balance between making art for the sake of making art. I don't really like doing that versus mm-hmm. making art because I genuinely have a message that I think people should hear. Mm. Mm. So it's like a delivery method. So how do you, I guess, decide of these things I'm making, this is the one they need to hear? Yeah, it's on a case-by-case basis, but really I just look at, you know, I follow a lot of other artists, cartoonists, but also across the board. And I just, you know, think to myself, like, is anyone saying this message, you know, and they're saying it the way I would say it. And if not, is it something that people really would hopefully, and that's obviously subjective, but hopefully have some value from hearing. So I had um, pretty good success earlier in the pandemic on, on Instagram, got a lot of likes, which is, you know, one of the metrics of success, but I made a comic about being, um, so, you know, the term Karen has really exploded. Uh, you know the funniest thing, though? I was going to talk about that Karen one, but yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I think even in the last year, it's really changed from being like a pushy woman to being racist. So, you know, um, I appreciate that our culture is always evolving. But I feel like at the time I made the comic, it was a little bit less explicit that being a Karen automatically meant you were being a racist. And I made this comic about how my mother is basically a Karen and how I have learned a lot from her pushiness in terms of um, overcoming systems. Mm. So at its best, being assertive is great when you're dealing with like a bureaucracy, a corporation, a government, and you have an issue and you're being stonewalled and you need to connect with the person who's going to help you overcome whatever the systemic issue is. Right. Mm -hmm. At its worst, it's like an oppressive um, policing citizen policing. So I was trying, this comic is trying to capture, like there's some good things about being assertive and being able to navigate systems. Just make sure that you're always punching up and not punching down. Right. Like if you're yelling at the Mm -hmm. checkout clerk, that's not really going to make the policy of the corporation change. If you find the CEO and you yell at the CEO, maybe that will have an impact. Mm. So, yeah, but that comic, I just felt like there was this whole Karen discourse going on. And I did feel like I had a perspective that wasn't being shared. Mm. Um, And so I decided to put it out there in the like months since then. Things really have changed in terms of like the definition of a Karen. Uh, and it does seem to be more like racist, just a code word for racist. So would I make that comic now? Probably not. Or if I did, it would be very different. And I would make sure to address that context. Mm. But, yeah. you know, no, I can't go back yeah, in time. I was, <laughs> I, I was going to, you know, speak up, uh, ask you about that one. So it's great you brought it up. Because um, like another one of your works, though, that I like is the video conferencing one because we are doing this right now. <laughs> I was like, when I when I said I'm like, does he know that I want to talk to him, to him through this <laughs> medium? Uh, but like, what was the inspiration for making that one? Well, I have a day job. I'm actually off work today. I took a holiday for other reasons, but um, it's great that this 
interview worked out at this time. But uh, yeah, I have a day job and I'm on minimum one video call a day, if not five. And it's, <laughs> this is a casual conversation. We're just chatting, but you know, at work it's, you're a little bit on display. Um, there's a teeny bit of performance pressure, you know, mm-hmm. to be professional, to be showing that you're paying attention, to show respect to your colleagues. And I really noticed this thing. It hasn't happened once in this call, but the, where I'd get these itches and basically the comic is about what different scratches mean. So the yeah. difference between scratching your nose, scratching here, scratching here, <laughs> and yeah. the different codes. And I was just, I mean, I said in the caption, like, I'm not an anthropologist. If anyone thinks this stuff means different <laughs> stuff. And also body language is cultural. So my, mm. cu- you know, my cultural framework for what this means might be different than in a different culture. But mm. generally speaking, like, I just found that I would get so itchy. I do still just get so itchy on these calls. <laughs> but I actually, so I, I decided to map it out and say, you know, yeah. this itch, it, this itch means this feeling, you know, like, this is like, I'm not listening or doubt or whatever. Yeah. Um, it sort of has backfired because I do have a few colleagues who follow me. <laughs> and now I, I tried to say to them that, you know, like, I was just kidding. That's it really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> if you see me scratch, don't worry about it. But I've noticed since I released that comment <laughs> that if I do scratch, yeah. they look at me right away. <laughs> so... You know, I'm glad that I put that out there. It was fun to work on. Um, that is another thing, though, that comes to mind. Like, you put yourself in your work. At what point did that start for you? And, like, does it ever get uncomfortable? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, uh, it start, it's just basically, like, write what you know, you know. Um, and I'm not really, like, I'm not so interested in fiction, both as a reader and a uh, artist like I do read fiction books and I love them and I read fiction comics as well but I'm really really attracted to autobiographical memoir work and I just feel like it has this truth to it like I always say to people a memoir doesn't even need to be true it just needs to feel true and it's enough mm. and it's kind of about the emotional connection and just um you know by exposing myself and being raw with my audience, I hope mm-hmm. that there's more value to that than kind of hiding away behind a character. Um, and yeah, I've been doing it for really since I started the diary comic in 2013 was when I kind of solidified that mode, but I just have so many stories to tell in terms of like comfort, discomfort. I'm actually working on a long form graphic novel about my family and my family history. And it's really raw and uh it's taken me years like i'm on year three of working on this thing and it's because Mm -hmm. it's actually emotionally taxing to work on it because it's about painful experiences that i've had and Mm -hmm. you know growing up and stuff like that so when i work on it i have to really be in the right mindset to be able to go into that world and play in that world and then i often need like long breaks because it's draining I think at the end of the day, hopefully one day I'll finish it, an audience will see value in it because it's so real and because truth is its own reward. And the fact that, you know, it doesn't, I like what I'm saying, but it almost doesn't matter what I'm saying as long as it's true. It happened, it's real. And that's kind of like its own tantalizing interest. Like for me, I love other artists when they just overshare, like that's my favorite. So (laughs) I just try and make the kind of work that I like to read. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great approach. Um, but like, well, I didn't know about this uh, graphic novel you're working on. Um, is it just you, or do you have other family people in it? And if they are, do they know? Okay, so yes, there's other family in it. And no, not really. They don't really know. Um, there's a very famous cartoonist named Alison Bechtel, who you might know the Bechtel test, mm-hmm. um, which is, a yeah, you know the Bechtel test. So she didn't even really come up with that, but it was in one of her comics. So that's why it's named after her. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has her like biggest book is called Fun Home. And it's a really raw story of her life growing up. And her dad was closeted gay, but married to her mom. Um, and so it's about like the awkwardness of her childhood mm-hmm. and she didn't ask her family for permission for that at all. And it became a huge hit. It's actually a Broadway musical now. Oh. And, uh, I think her brothers and sisters ended up supporting it. But at first when she dropped it, it yeah. was like a bomb went off, but Yikes. I think I'd rather ask forgiveness than <laughs> ask for permission. Yeah. It's raw, man. You know, especially with family. Because um, you might get this thing where people remember the exact same thing differently, right? Um, and they're like, yeah, that's not how I recall it, right? And if they are younger, or especially if they are older, they always say, no, 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 you're wrong. I was like, well, it happened to me, and you know. So I, I think, um, yeah, it takes a you're lot You're touching of- on one of the... Yeah. Sorry, you're no, you're ahead. touching on one of the themes of the book, though, which is like older people often do have this impulse for denial, where they don't want to confront the mistakes of their past, and they don't want to own up to what they were going through and how that affected their act behavior. Right. So yeah, it, that that is directly part of this book, right? Do you have a name for it? Uh, yeah. Well, um, I have this project called Self Loving Jew, which is a whole thing. Um, there's a <laughs> Um, I'm Jewish, yeah. and there's this stereotype of the yeah. self-hating Jew. Yes. So you've heard of it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, n- n- yeah like, you know, it's, it's just a stupid stereotype that, you know, if you're a Jew, you just hate yourself, and your mom is... And then all of Hollywood makes this... Um... Like it's, it's very repeated. Crazy... Exactly, yeah. It's a stereotype. It actually started in the in the 1800s in Germany which oh. was the first time that Jewish people were secularizing, were becoming like non-visibly religious. Mm. And so the religious Jews would say like, oh, if you act that way, you must hate yourself. Mm. And now it's really applied. If you're like, for example, a critic of Zionism, then people say like, if you're Jewish, they'll be like, and they're Zionists, they'll be like, how could you hate, you know, how could you be against Zionism? You must hate yourself. Mm. It's just a way of dismissing dissent. And yeah. it's not very credible. So in order to counter that, I created this work called Self-Loving Jew, which is basically a secular cultural reclamation of that trope and saying like, no, living your life authentically, not because you are supposed to follow these rules, but because you want to do X, you know, you want to live your life the way you want to live your life. That's self-love. So I have a number of works that are sort of short form about that. But this book is called Self-Loving Jew Needs Love will be called that if i ever finish it and uh (laughs) it's just basically like the whole story of my life and you know my parents lives and how i kind of got to that point where i made the decision to be a self-loving jew Mm. how far back are you going in this book like zero like oh you know my earliest memories Yeah. yeah 
Um, yeah. Uh, do you think it will finish anytime soon? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, thought so. I thought so. But like, okay, now you're working on this project where, you know, you actually have to get into the state of mind to know, okay, I'm going to handle these really difficult things and like, I I'm in the right mind frame to take care of that. And then I'm going to take some time back to take care of myself. And you're doing this back and forth. Uh, but at what time will you know the book is done? Well, yeah, I mean, it really is like, you know, finishing drawing it. So I spent two years writing the script and it's over a hundred pages. Wow. So it was just a lot of work to get those ideas out in the first place and then mm. shape them. Cause I had to keep, it was like a sculpture almost. I had all the raw material, but I had to keep on working to get it into a narrative flow where it would be inviting for the reader. Because obviously I have all these ideas in my head, but if I just like blurt them out, it's not necessarily going to be a structured story in which I'm considering my audience, which is something I said earlier, that's really mm. important to me, considering the reader and how they're gonna experience the work, not just my emotion as the artist. Yeah. So yeah. it took like two years to write this script, honestly. Wow. And I got a lot of feedback from people, um, friends, relatives, professional writers who helped me identify where things weren't making sense or where more explanation was needed or where it was too explained and it could be simplified. So that took a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And now I'm drawing it and it's just like kind of a mood thing. Um, I try not to do this, um, but often I make work in a kind of mania where oh. I go into this like tunnel. Yes. And <laughs> And you just kind of like work, 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 yeah. work. And then you come yeah. out of it and you're like, whoa, what happened? Yeah. And you have all this work done. <laughs> I'm trying to be more um, methodical about it, calm okay. about it, and just like do a little bit every day or do a little mm. bit every few days. But often it's more the former where I just kind of like go into the zone and I don't really do anything else. I spend like four days straight just like drawing, 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 drawing. And then what gets done is done. So I'm kind <laughs> of, I'm on the drawing stage now. Okay. And what's going to happen is I'm going to draw out the whole thing and then I'm going to be able to share it with people again, all the people who read the script and it's going to be much more clear for them because now it will be fully fleshed out. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I'll get a bunch more feedback and it'll just go from there. And I would like to hopefully work with the publisher. Like I self publish everything that I've made, but mm -hmm. um, I would like to work with the publisher for this. We'll see if there's an appetite, but if mm -hmm. that does work out, I would also like value the publisher, the editor's, um, input. So I'm trying to like get a lot done to be able to get it to the point where I can present it to mm. hopefully um, turn it into a real book. And I mean, if that doesn't work out, I'll self-publish it. But mm -hmm. having that support would be nice, not just like financially or whatever, promotional, but also just like having professionals be like, oh, this doesn't make sense, or this could be more clear, or this is too controversial, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll say, no, we should any, keep it there's in. There's anything in the book that will get that comment? Uh, it's like <laughs> I do talk about Zionism, and it's a very contentious topic. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Um, so the script is done. For oh. now. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think you'll add stuff to it? or? Yeah, oh, it's always okay. changing. And, like, it's about my life, right? So, like, right. I right. feel like I, I finished writing it 
a few months ago. And then I feel like I've gained all this perspective, you know, especially during the COVID I, in, in Ontario, we've been in COVID, I'm in Toronto and we've been on COVID lockdown for over a year. Right. So I've had lots of time to think and I feel like I keep understanding my own story better and better ways of telling it and making it more mm-hmm. succinct and also making the connections between these different pieces stronger. Yeah. So there's a, an artist um, who did a memoir about her family escaping Vietnam and moving to the United States in the seventies, but um, it took her 10 years. So it's a beautiful book and it's like 300 pages. It's very, very moving. Um, And so once I, I read her book a few months ago and once I saw that it took her 10 years, it was a huge sigh of relief for me because I was (laughs) like, like, Oh, I'm off. I've only been two years. Yeah. I've got eight more yeah. to go. Yeah. Um, um, we, so, like, with the scripts, right? Because, like, I, I write movie scripts. Like, how is the structure for a comic script similar or? It's pretty it? similar. A lot of cartoonists really, really dislike the comparison between comic books and cinema. They don't like to think of comics as just storyboards that are waiting to be made into movies. Mm. So it's a bit of a controversial-ish topic in the community. But um, yeah, I, I basically like have this the text that's going to be written out. So if it's a caption or a speech balloon. But then I also have some description. It depends on how ambitious the project is. Or mm. sometimes I don't really know what I'm going to draw until I draw it. Oh. Sometimes I really map it out. Sometimes I just let it flow. It depends. But yeah, it's basically a roadmap. I, I, I find that if, as we were talking about it earlier in our conversation, if you just kind of start from nothing, you're going to end up wasting a lot of time. It's better to have some kind of roadmap ahead of time. Mm. So it will be like page one, panel one, uh, Jonathan opening, Johnny opening the computer to, you know, get the Zoom call going or whatever. Page two, like, hi, Israel, like, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so panel is a little squares, right? Yeah. Um, is there like a rule to how many you can have on a page? No, but you do have to decide ahead of time what the page size is, which is one of the biggest decisions. And then, so you can decide if it's going to be six by nine, eight and a half by 11, eight by 10, you know, all these different sizes, right? Because you really need to set that out before you start drawing. Is there like a like a general regular size that most people go for? Yeah, mostly people do um like eight, eight by ten is the standard, which is okay. like um normally most cartoonists draw bigger and then when you shrink it down for reproduction it looks crisper. So you'll take like a 10 inch by 14 inch piece of paper and you'll draw on that and then you'll shrink that down to eight by 10 or eight and a half by 11, whatever it is. And, um, it just kind of like crisps the artwork up. Mm. Um, not every artist does that, but it's very (laughs) common. And then if you're doing, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, And if you're doing the eight by four, eight eight by 14, is it? Yeah. 10 by 14, 10 by 14. If you're doing a 10 by 14, how many panels could you fit on there? Yeah. Like, so I am doing that for this comic and I'm generally doing six per page. And again, like, so, uh, three rows of two panels each. Okay. Two, two, two. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. The other thing is, how do you know if you're reading like this versus reading like that? Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, like I'm in the like Western tradition. So me, it's like 
top to bottom, left to right. But like manga, for example, goes top to bottom, right to left, because uh, in Japan they go right to left, right? So um, oh. it really depends on the tradition. And it used to be that when manga was reproduced for the West, for English, they would flip it and make it left to right. But in the last like 10, 15 years, they've switched. And now it's very common that they just keep it right to left. And when you open the book, like at the left in English, it says like, you're at the end of the book. Turn the book around to get to the <laughs> beginning. To yeah. So it just depends. I mean, like, yeah, there's Tintin um, is also 10 by 14 approximately. Like, you know, Tintin, right? Yeah, yeah. Tintin, Classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you, you when you're thinking about the page, so you're thinking about the one page and you want all the energy to be going into the page. So you want the top left people to be looking in and down and the bottom right people to be looking in and up to like keep that energy going. And then there's also the double page spread. So you want like the left page to be interacting with the right page. And then there's also so that there's like flow. And then there's also the page turn, Tintin, at the bottom right of every single page, there's a cliffhanger. Something unresolved. Yeah. So like there's all these little tricks to like maintain visual interest. So cool. Yeah, that's so cool. That is so cool. Like, I, I, my mind is just spinning that, you know, there's so much planning that goes into it, but it's so much work, too. Yeah, I was joking with you when we were talking earlier. It takes 10, 10 hours to make and 10 seconds to read. <laughs> yeah, you said that. It's so funny. But, like, um, so, so you, you know, you write the script and you decide what goes into every panel. Um, so... With this book that you've been writing for how long, you know, for, for years, two years now, how big is it going to be? And is there ever a, a, like a limit to how book how big a book can be? No, I, I mean, I would like it to be as long as possible because the longer it is, the more likely it is that it's going to get published by a publisher. And also the more money it would fetch, you know, like a 90 page book is just less work than a 200 page book. Um so yeah, this book right now is about 150 pages. Wow. It could get longer. Um, it depends on how the process unfolds, but uh, there's no real limit. It's just about like, yeah, you know, the more pages it is, it's also the more expensive it is to produce. So especially if I self-publish it, I'll probably end up doing it not as one large graphic novel, but as mm. smaller chunks and publishing like an issue one, issue two, issue three kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I tried to like plan out ahead of time. Like I look at my bookshelf and I look at the books on my bookshelf and I decide like what a nice book size that I like is. And then I figure out like what the scaled up size of that is mm. and go from there. So um, the other thing that was just coming to mind now is I, I'm just diving deep into this comic. Like with comics, right? How does time work, especially in this case that you're doing your whole life? Like, how do you decide, okay, I've done year two in four pages versus, and I'm all going to go from year two to year 11 or something? Yeah, that's a huge question. <laughs> that's like the metaphysical metaphysical question of comics for sure. Um, uh, I want to recommend, there's this seminal book called Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. And he dives deep, deep, deep into that stuff. Um, Mm. But basically, it's just creative choice and what serves the story best, right? So Mm. yeah, there are some moments in this story where I'm five years old for page after page after page, because so much happened at that age that I want to share. And then 
ages six to 12, I just speed by because it's kind of nothing significant happened. Mm-hmm. And then I get to age 12 and there's a bunch more detail. So it's really um, just about serving the story. And then because it's visual, I don't really have to explain the age changes so much and I can just show the growth, right? I can show like, you know, from being a very small child to being a teenager, I can show that development. And because I've been drawing myself for so many years, I do have kind of like the way I draw myself as a kid, the way I draw myself as a teenager, as an adult, etc. And then, you know, um, I'm a proud bald man. So uh, it's very easy to differentiate between my child self and yeah. my adult self. <laughs> <laughs> There's a stark visual difference. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm hopping on about this book because it's to me it's really fascinating. But um, thank you. One, one other thing that you do that actually you know I I love your work, uh, but the one that really pulled me in was Sadvember. Um, but before you get into that, like you you love the tactile feel of drawing on pencil and stuff but some of your work is digital like when did you do the uh the, when did that evolution come in and how comfortable is it for you especially since you really love the feel of paper yeah it's definitely been a slow progression of me just like slowly over time accepting the wonder of the computer and how time-saving it is um I, up until last year, was doing all my pencils by hand and many of my inks. And then what I would do is I would scan and I would bring it into Photoshop and then I'd do touch-ups and color. In last summer, I did bite the bullet and get an iPad. And now I'm drawing on the iPad. And really that was about um, just utility. Like with the pandemic, it was just getting harder and harder to go buy art supplies it just made sense to just get the iPad and then it kind of is all digital. Um, there's definitely some loss from that. Like I miss having the originals, but also, you know, my storage space was getting full of all my <laughs> own art and it's definitely easier to just buy a hard drive. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's, it's a balance. I mean, I think with my style, it doesn't really make a difference. Um, and the, technology like the ipad and the applications that you can draw on now are just so incredible in terms of mimicking the real um materials that it's almost hard to tell the difference Mm. yeah the only loss is you know if i were to have some success and people wanted to have a gallery show of my work i wouldn't have anything to display (laughs) but you could make just nft though oh yeah great (laughs) I look, uh, probably not, but if I'm desperate, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, it's just a balance. Like I, I love the traditional media, but at some point in time, you know, I see what people are able to accomplish digitally Mm. and how much faster it is, Mm. you know, like you can just edit so easily. Right. Um, that I just decided that it was time and I'll always go back and forth depending on time and space. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I want to end with Sadvemba because, like, that's that's my thing. Um, why do you do it, and how do you even decide the theme, the the daily themes? Um, yeah, so Sadvember um, actually grew out of my diary comic practice. Um, I had been doing the diary comic for four years, and then I kind of had like a crash where I was mm-hmm. just doing too much, and it was unsustainable. And I needed to give something up. And it was very sad for me to give up the diary comic. Mm. Um, But then um, 
I started doing Inktober, which is a month. Uh, it happens in the month of October every year for many years. And it's basically like an online challenge where there's daily themes and you're asked to draw an ink drawing every day for mm-hmm. o- October. And I love Inktober. I think it's great. I think it's great that it encourages people to make work and that there's a platform for people to share work. And it's great to be in that community and be motivated to make work, knowing that there's this daily challenge and knowing that other people are going to be doing it and sharing it and you're going to be seeing each other's work and supporting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, I was dissatisfied with Inktober in terms of it's very vapid. It's kind of just like making work for the sake of making work. There's no real, I respect it and I respect the benefit of it, but in some ways there's no real soul to it. And it kind of perpetuates the Protestant work ethic, which is this like probably destructive ideology that work is the ultimate and that to be productive is your purpose in life versus like, for example, to relax, which may truly be our purposes in life. Um, So it kind of just seemed like people were doing Inktober for the hype, but there wasn't anything behind it. So Sadvember is a reaction to Inktober and it's basically saying like, let's make a comic every day for November, but let's make it about something. And the theme is depression. Mm -hmm. And so the first year I did it was 2017. And at that time I was, I mean, I still am very much, uh, you know, the climate crisis is upon us. Um, It hasn't happened yet, but there's possible there may be a mass extinction caused by human beings Um, Our environmental degradation, you know, not our collectively, not as individuals uh, is undeniable and it's depressing and it's scary and it's really hard to process that, you know, possibly in our lifetime, the biodiversity of Earth will plummet. Um, Mm. So I wanted to, it's kind of the exact opposite of Inktober. It's very laden with meaning. Um, And so I did that for the first year and it was really well received, thankfully, Uh, So I decided to do it again in the subsequent years. And I decided um, I started doing therapy in 2017 for the first time. And so I decided to do 2018 and 2019 about my therapy journey. So really it was like a diary comic, like just saying like, this is what happened in therapy. This is what I was feeling. This is what we talked about. This was the impact. This was the revelation, et cetera. Um, And so it was just, you know, is it's continues to be sort of like a send up parody of Inktober, but every year that it goes on, it takes on a life of its own in terms of, um, and, and in terms of like having actual content to it. And then mm-hmm. it kind of parallels like the societal, um, acceptance of mental health issues has really increased. So, you know, 10 years ago, it was still really stigmatized to talk about anxiety and depression, talk about mental health issues. Now I feel like maybe it's still as stigmatized in many ways, but at least on the surface, it is something that is embraced and understood that many, many people deal with. The majority of us deal with it, right? So um, having a platform to share those ideas has been really helpful for me, like in my therapy journey, for me in my art practice. And I have encouraged others to participate in the same way that Inktober is for everyone and is public and participatory. And so you're, you yourself have participated for the last two years, I believe, yeah. which has been great to see. And others have participated. You know, I don't, I, I don't have a huge online presence. Um, it hasn't gone viral yet. Maybe one year, you know, it will become a mass phenomenon. Um, 
But in the meantime, it's just nice for me and anyone who knows me and feels um, they get benefit to participate. And so it's like a daily challenge, but um, yeah, with heart. And in terms of the themes, like people, so in up for Inktober, they actually release like an official theme prompt list. Like the person who created Inktober does it, but then a bunch of other artists also create their own prompts. And that's really helpful to the participants because it gives them something to do every day rather than being left on their own. So last year, 2020, for the first time, I did a prompt list and I kind of did it as a joke because I was like, the, the prompt is sadness. What do you need to know more than that? <laughs> so I picked all these really sad words. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, no, I have to follow the prompt list. <laughs> so I ended up doing it and it was hard. I picked some yeah. hard words. So next year, I think I'll do another prompt list. But yeah, I have that, the, the gained... prompt list is a very good idea. I like it. I like it. I like it. It, it helps because it, it's a way of in making it as inviting as possible, right? Mm. It's not saying like, good luck. It's sad vember. Good luck. Have fun. <laughs> it's like, here's something that you can build something off of. But yeah, if I do it again next year, I'm going to make the prompts more digestible, more easy to interpret and not so repetitive because I did words like melancholy, uh, you know, doleful, uh, like sad and it's just like basically the same word over and over the, again the, the last two or the last three were sadness 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 yeah and that was part of the joke right yeah. i was like what do you want from me i can't even think <laughs> of any more of these um so yeah i mean in some ways it's all pretty self-directed like mm -hmm. for my own self and just my own sense of humor and reacting to internet artist culture which in some ways is amazing and supportive and inspiring and in other ways is very toxic and competitive mm -hmm. so kind of like playing with that um but yeah next year will be the fifth year of sad member and i'm going to release a prompt list that hopefully is more digestible and mm -hmm. yeah for 2020 i actually didn't do autobiographical i it was still autobiographical because of course but i created like a shape and had that shape be the messenger mm -hmm. and it was because um 2020 was a hard year for so many people and there's a lot of real you know beyond just the regular mental health of surviving capitalism with the pandemic it was extra challenging so i felt like no one needed to hear about my therapy in 2020 like that was a it was just not the right talking about taking up space and using my platform and what do i share on my platform it just felt like if i was like oh i did therapy for the last year it would be kind of out of touch with the reality of the challenges of the pandemic mm -hmm. so i decided to do this more universal character and that was really well received i was really uh, surprised and pleased mm -hmm. because the more simple the character is and the more neutral the character is the more people can relate to it right yes. so if it's a drawing of me it's possible that people will be like well i'm not a white man so i don't care about this white man's problems but if it's like a little blue circle then it's kind of easier to be like for anyone to be like, you know, no matter their background to say like, oh, I could be a little blue circle too. Mm -hmm. So it was cool to push myself and realize like, uh, it's, is it really, is there really value in the context of the winter pandemic mm -hmm. to share like, I went to therapy every week or is it better to universalize it? So that was like a, an adjustment on my part to make it as welcoming as possible. Well, you know what? I, I do hope you do it this year again, for sure. Because, like, um, I find that 
about apart from the community, even though it's online, um, it makes so I try to get make some time for myself to like reflect on just things and myself um it is it's really helpful and then especially having those prompts are like super helpful too well thank you for that feedback thank you for participating it's you know we all have our own sadness and pain and if there's an outlet for it hopefully it just makes it a little bit more bearable so mm-hmm. yeah i'm definitely going to do it again for 2021 and I'm definitely going to do a prompts list. I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to go back to being autobiographical or if I'm going to stick with my shape. We'll see. I actually decided in 2020, I decided the day before. Like I'd been really, really going back and forth and back and forth. And then all of a sudden it was Halloween and I was like, oh, I have to make a comic for tomorrow. (laughs) So I just went with my instincts. So we'll see what happens. But um yeah, it's definitely going to happen. And then maybe after five years, I'll see if it's worth doing again. But I have a feeling that I'll keep doing it for many years to come. Okay. Inktober just gets more and more popular every year. So um, I just want to make sure that there's this alternative. Ah, mm. mm. oh, man, Johnny, I could keep talking to you. So I just want to say thank you first for coming to the sanctuary and for sharing and for making comic make sense. Like I read it, but like, there are things you don't think it's done and then when you mention things like actually having people look up or down uh, or like having pages interact and it's like or having the last panel be a cliffhanger it's like oh man so it's like all these thoughts is being put into this piece of work i'm holding um so like i learned a lot today and i think we should do this again soon thank you i I, i'm very grateful to be a guest and to be able to talk to you and talk you know speaking about myself, I learn about myself and your questions are so thoughtful and um, inspiring. And yeah, I, I definitely welcome being in touch and hope to return. Thank you for your time and interest.